Welcome back to Panoramic Outdoors Podcast. I'm Sheldon Grant. Today we got a great episode. We got Frank Baldwin on. Uh, if you haven't, if you don't know who he is, I would suggest going back into our catalog, going back to like maybe the first 10 or 15 episodes we had him on way back then. Check that out. Let us know what you think and then continue tuning in. We also have two other guys on board for the intro. Tristan, I take a lot of selfies with my dog, Drylick. What's going on over there? Oh, not much. Just uh, scrolling through the selfies at the moment. It's a lot of time and effort when you think about it. Uh, because not only do you have to take the selfies, but you have to like kind of evaluate them and uh, almost curate them in some ways. I don't want to call it art, but it could be <laughs> art in some ways. Yeah, for sure. How is Willie doing? He's growing lots. It looks oh like. man, he's he's a weed, and it's uh, it's it's tough to keep up with him almost in some extent. Like it's uh, you, you think they're going to be in that puppy phase forever, and it turns out it's only a week, and then all our already is romping around and up and down and he's so like curious and brave at the moment that he's all over the the neighborhood at this point in time so yeah for sure and it's he it's looks kinda, like chase can you wait till i introduce you please um <laughs> although covid has a lot of restrictions and i cannot come and visit this new uh this new puppy that you got you do have a pretty cool blog um going on you've got three kind of, i don't even know what you call them they're not episodes but they're like three journal entries that journal the, entries the panoramic go. journal and yeah so the intent here is just to kind of give a snapshot of what uh willie's development's going to be like and it's uh it's the good it's the bad it's uh it's everything there and it's it's been kind of fun when you, when i get a moment of calm to sit back and reflect about this kind of journey because when you when you by a dog you you know you take on that responsibility and that you embark on a journey with that animal um so it's given me an opportunity to reflect on what that all means so if if you're interested in in checking that out go to our website it's on there it's the panoramic journal uh we got a few entries there we also got uh um our friend there hack who's uh who's started kicked it off for us there with his elk harvest there and uh yeah, check it out. It's uh, it's another way to engage with the panoramic outdoors crew. Yeah, I have a lot of dog, a lot of dogs. I have a lot of questions about that dog, but I was thinking that we should do a podcast episode about maybe that dog in general and just training dogs, but something to talk about later on. But anyways, we'll get to you now, Chase. Hey, how's it going? I haven't caught a fish yet this year. Drylick. <laughs> that's that's a lie. I've caught some fish, but uh, going pretty good, man. I'm I'm looking forward to. Uh, the weekend where I will be attempting to catch some fish on Lake Winnipeg, which I haven't done yet this year. Um, that has caught a fish on Lake Winnipeg, but, uh, I'm doing good, man. I was just going to say to Tristan, your Willie looks like he's gotten out of that, like initial puppy stage. And now he's at like that, that big footed, long legged clumsy dog stage right now. Oh man, totally. He's he's got uh he's got three body parts and when he runs, they all go in different directions. So his main body center of mass is going forward, his limbs are going in another direction and then his ears actually elevate. So you got like <laughs> kind of like this gyroscopic uh fur ball just kind of flying around the yard. <laughs> That's hilarious. That. Yeah. And uh oh, we got that go ahead. we yeah. <laughs> Sheldon, we haven't introduced you yet, so welcome to the Panoramic <laughs> Outdoor Podcast. How are you doing, the king of B-Town, Sheldon Grant? 
I've been doing great. I got a cool story to tell you guys right off the bat. So like a lot of people know, I do a bit of driving with my job and I had to drive to basically the southwestern part of Manitoba, like the farthest corner you can go, like basically the border of the U.S. and Saskatchewan and uh, from Brandon, a couple hour drive. But on my way, it was a nice afternoon. I think it was about minus 15. So it's like we're coming out of this cold snap. It's a nice afternoon. I, I seen... I witnessed seven moose and probably over a dozen coyotes on the two-hour trip, which is unreal for mid-afternoon. I thought it was just unreal. Um, but I guess I didn't really take in perspective that the coyotes are, are they are in breeding season, I think, right now. So I seen a, a pair, a couple pairs, and, and one with, there was one field that had three of them in them. So a lot of, uh, a lot of activity happening. Uh, it's almost like a sign of springs coming right around the corner, so that's nice. It's also a sign that I'll be changing your nickname from the King of B-Town to the Coyote Tickler. If that, uh, if <laughs> so that... you're bringing back my university name. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, and uh, just for, for the notes here, if folks are interested, uh, the the f- initial episode with Frank Baldwin was uh, episode number four. And I, I remember, oh. yeah, I wasn't able to, to sign it on that one, but I, I remember listening to it on my drive down south and... Uh, just being super excited, not only about the podcast, but like Frank is just such a smart dude that it's it was almost painful not to be there for that podcast. Yeah, it's a wealth of knowledge when you get that guy on. <clears throat> the other thing about that episode number four, we did have some uh, audio quality issues. And just to tell everyone that's listening right now that we are continuing with some audio issues just because we are doing as much as we can to to abide by the COVID rules. So we're doing everything remote. That means that everyone's in a different spot in this province when we record these things. Um, but I got a, I got a little segment I'd like to call Two Lies and a Truth. So I'm going to tell you guys three little short stories. And I want you, after I'm done telling the stories, Chase, I don't want you to interrupt me. I want you to tell me which one is true. You guys want to play this game or what? Oh, man. I, I'm guessing I have no option, but yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> So number one, my number one story is that when I was a young buck, I was probably like 13 or 14, I went muzzleload hunting with my dad. And for some reason, I had a cigarette with me. It was, I don't know where I got it, if I stole it from my mom or I had it from whatever, smoking behind the school or whatever it may have been. Anyways, I go muzzleload with my dad. And at that time, I do believe we had an, an anerless tag. So sitting in the tree stand, I'm having this dart. And I was like concentrating on this smoking a cigarette because I was very new to smoking anything of any sort. So when I ashed it, I was always watching where it landed. And I got so like mesmerized by this smoke. I ended up, you know, putting it out on the tree stand, making sure I didn't start a fire. And I looked up and there's a doe standing there. I never got to shoot it. And I remember my dad was like down the field line. And when we got back to the truck that night, he gave me shit for not shooting that deer. So that's my first story. My second story, I was going to play or I was going to practice in Shoal Lake and which is about an hour drive west of Nipah and we were driving home one night I was driving my dad's like work truck because I didn't have a reliable vehicle and I remember driving and um, just nothing but black in front of me I ended up hitting a moose breaking two of its front legs it fell on the side of the road we we stopped and we're like what the hell are we gonna do now so and at that time I don't think I don't even think we had cell phones and it just so happened that the RCMP were driving by like Five minutes later, they pulled over. They ended up dispatching the moose, calling for a tow truck. We got our parents to come pick us up. My dad was was pissed. He wasn't mad at me that I hit a moose. He was just mad that he didn't have a work vehicle for the next few days. 
Um, and then my third story, and this one uh, is quite funny. I was at a party, and uh, they had this dog. His name was Newman, and we fed him a bunch of hot dogs, like wieners, like Schneider's wieners. He took one and he ate it, and then he ended up puking it back up into three pieces, and somebody bet me that I wouldn't eat this this hot dog. And I was like, yeah, I'll take that bet. So they bet me a 24 beer and a bottle of whiskey. So I ended up taking all three pieces and eating this this hot dog. And the only reason why I did it was because the next weekend was May long, and uh, that was a big party time for me. So I got free booze for the weekend. So two truths and a lie, or sorry, two lies and a truth. Tell me which one is. Oh, let's go. T- let's go uh, the other way around. One of those is one of those is a lie. I Tell was me which just one gonna is. say. I'm pretty sure I've heard two of these stories before already. <laughs> Kristen, you go first. Well, your stories normally aren't funny, so I I would say that number three is a lie, but I also know that you like hot dogs, so I'm going to go with number one. (laughs) Chase, what do you think? Well, um, I'm trying to figure out if I can play any trickery with this to figure out if the other stories you tell me are bullshit or not. (laughs) Because I know you've told me number one and number three before. And I haven't heard number two about the moose yet. And I told you I know... number three before? Yeah. Oh, no way. Yeah. Yeah, number two is a lie. I never hit a moose. I never hit a moose. I hit a deer once, but not a moose. But anyways, that wraps up uh, Two Truths and a Lie for this segment. I expect you guys to have three stories for the next podcast intro, but whatever. Tristan, you've been cooking some food on that pit barrel or what? Yeah, you know what? The, f- the weather finally warmed up today. We got out of that minus 30 cold snap, and it meant that it was time to pull the pit barrel out and put it to work again and i was actually really excited to to get to it because i had a duck that i'd shot out of the netley marsh there uh, a redhead and i had um kind of uh spatchcocked it and was dry brining it in a salt pepper and uh tangerine kind of dry brine so and it turned out absolutely fantastic on that pit barrel and i also got a snap from my neighbor who had just got a bunch of ribeyes uh next door and i was like man throw on the pit barrel he's like dude i came home i smelled that thing it smelled awesome i can't imagine how steaks would turn out on that he didn't take me up on it i wish he would have though because i think i don't know if there's a better way to cook a steak than on that thing too so but yeah the the saga never ends with the pit barrel. I feel like it uh, it just keeps giving. Yeah, for sure. And if you want to get into a pit barrel barbecue, go to www.pitbarrelcooker.com. Go onto their website. They've got all of their <clears throat> pit barrel cookers. They've got accessories. They got everything you need to know. If you're from Canada, you can go to their website and you can look at the map to find out where they sell one closest to you. And if you're in the U.S., they have free shipping. So that's pitbarrelcooker.com. Chase, have you been doing any good cooking lately or give me some? Oh, no, before we get to you, spatchcock, that just means like cutting out the backbone and laying it flat? Yeah, pretty much. But I, I, I was lazy. I just took a cleaver and went to the back and just just cut it open. Just cut it open, yeah. All right. Why don't, why don't you explain the, the purpose of spatchcock and something, Tristan? It's so um, when you're cooking, you want more spatch than cock. <laughs> <laughs> cooking or uh 
Yeah, but no, no. So if you're spatch, just the the reason that you would spatchcock a, a bird is to like make it cook more evenly and more efficiently. Um, so you get like kind of a flatter presentation on the grill, and then that way you don't have like maybe such a long roasting time. Like with the duck here, I was hoping to sear it really quickly for, uh, but I let it smoke for longer, and uh, that still turned out really well. Um, dry brining, another great technique, and helps not only impart a lot of flavor on the meat but it helps tenderize it and uh keep the moisture in at the same time too so i'd recommend that is that an aged bird or no it was an aged bird yeah yeah i plucked aged spatchcock dry rind and then hit the grill nice totally sweet um okay so i'm going to where where i was am i have i been cooking anything up yet not really man my my diet right now is pretty Pretty lame, but I got a couple things in the queue. This week, I really sucked at cooking. I don't know why, but I just like wasn't wasn't into it. But uh, next week, I'm gonna try out this uh, this here uh, Vietnamese stew. It's called with some venison shanks, and uh, it's gonna be my first crack at at that recipe. But stay tuned to see. Uh, see the results on that is this i used to eat this all the time at, at this one restaurant i went to and uh i'm in love with it and i just want to try making it at pizza hut at pizza hut nice i just like to say too before we launch this episode uh we just had a sale and with um i think it was a long weekend sale with hats and toques and stuff thank you anyone any thank you to everyone that's um, bought any uh, we really appreciate that and if anyone's looking for any gear Check out our store. It's www.panoramicoutdoors.com. We got hats, toques. We got a new sweater in there. We got a new like buff or gator, whatever you want to call them. We call it the goose band. That's new in the store. And we've got a lot of stuff coming out probably for the summertime. So if you're ever looking for anything, that's also where you can find that blog that we were talking about earlier with Tristan. You can find uh, gift cards. You can find patches for your, your knapsack or whatever you're carrying around. Um, but yeah, other than that, that's that's all I got for the store part of things. Well, I tell you what, I can't wait to hear what you guys got going on with Frank Baldwin here. Uh, real pleasure to have him back on the show, I'm sure. And hope everyone enjoys this podcast as much as I'm about to. So stay tuned. Listen up. And joining us for the his second appearance on the podcast... Welcome, Frank Baldwin. Hey, Frank, how's it going today? Good, guys. Thanks for having me back. Right on, man. I'm, I'm super excited about this. Um, you know, we, we had you on on one of our earliest episodes of the Panoramic Outdoors podcast, and uh, we still had a lot of learning curves to kind of cross, and, and we had a couple uh, sound issues with that episode, but overall, that I felt like uh, the the information in the episode was was really great, so um, I'm hoping to dig even deeper into into a little bit of your brain here today. But uh, why don't you tell everyone where where you're, you're uh, tuning in with us from here today, Frank? All right, yeah, good to be back. I'm tuning in from my daughter's bedroom here in uh, in my house in uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, and like everybody else, I've been working at home for uh, coming up to close to a year here, so. A lot has changed since I last spoke with you guys, but um, all in all, doing well and and looking forward to spring. So you're telling me that 
frozen chair in the corner there isn't your decor? <laughs> <laughs> I, if I sat in it, it might be stuck permanently, permanently to me. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I can see getting caught having a snooze in that midday. <laughs> yeah, I I never blur my background out because I'm I want people to know where 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 I am and what I experience. So yeah, right on, right on. Um, well, we're gonna start out uh, today's episode here for you with the. Uh, the typical five burning questions and as a little get to know Frank portion of the show here. So uh, answer these as you will take however much time as you want, but uh, we'll start off with the usual. You have one last meal to have before you leave this earth for aliens invade. And uh, what's that going to be? And what are you going to wash it down with? I'm kind of excited about this one because I, I know if everyone knows Frank and the, your history with your father and the cookbook and all that stuff. So go ahead, Frank. Oh, that's an, yeah, that's an easy question. I, I don't even really need to think about that one. And it's, and I'm not going to, this, my answer isn't because of the subject of the podcast, but I'm going to say spring goose. There's no question. Spring snow goose, the most, uh, the, the greatest wild game that exists in North America, as far as I've tasted. And it would be uh, it would be stuffed with cream cheese and uh, hot banana peppers, uh, and either wrapped in bacon or left uh, skin on, and then done on the grill, medium rare. That would be my last meal, definitely. And I'd wash it down with uh, my new pandemic hobby is brewing beer, so I'd I'd wash it down with a nice uh, floral IPA, Citra hops. Nice. I like the sounds of that. <laughs> Do you, do you have a name for that beer? Is it called like Frankie's or something or what? I don't have. I've been telling my kids they got to help me come up with some names so that I can keep them all straight. So I might have to get back to you on that. Awesome, awesome, man! I that I am yet to get into a pile of spring snow geese, and uh, I don't even know if I've had uh, spring snow geese for table fare. Um, but I, I was talking to our buddy Rolled there too, and uh, telling him how. Like, come on, man, Get, hook us up with the hunt here. Let's go <laughs> Let's figure something out. And uh, just just primarily for the meat, but uh, secondarily, I really want to render down a lot of that, that fat too and use that for cooking. Um, how would you describe the spring snow goose? Time to know that. Oh, they're just, they're, they're just so, they're so naturally fattened. They're, they're getting ready for reproduction. They're getting ready to lay eggs and, and go through a prolonged period of, um, you know, where they don't eat a whole lot, where there isn't much access to food on the tundra so they're they're taking all their resources especially all their fat reserves north to them you know and 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 that makes them you know just extremely uh succulent and uh they you get you know every every part of that of that goose is phenomenal eating they're 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 rarely tough um they all they always have a nice layer of fat on the on the breast and the legs. I try to pluck them out and take that fat with the with the breast when I take the breast meat off. You can't help but get it when you take the legs off. It's 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 all all over the legs. And then like you said, they've got a, a huge amount of abdominal fat that comes out as one big white mass if you if you gut them and you can render that down and, and put that in jars and it it's like a snow white uh, lard that you can use for doing potatoes or, you know, bannock or or whatever you like and they're just there's so much of the bird that you can utilize and and the best part of them all is uh, their livers their livers are 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 sort of straw yellow 
um, because they're they're naturally it's sort of natural uh, foie gras, so nat- naturally fattened. Um, they're amazing for making pate. Uh, the, the whole bird is is just spring geese are totally different than fall geese. Oh man, from that perspective. Yeah, because because uh, I I heard a lot of guys call them sky carp in the fall just because they don't they don't like eating them. Yeah, it's really a misnomer. It really is. There's you know late in the fall when they're when they're leaving when they're in in uh, really fattened up in nice shape they're they're just as good but they never get quite as fat as they do in the spring. I mean they're they're putting on the last of their reserves here in you know in Manitoba and Saskatchewan before they fly over the boreal and get into the Arctic so they're. They don't get any fatter than they are here in the spring. I got a uh, little follow-up question too about this. <clears throat> I just find like some people that um, I've served, let's say goose or duck or whatever too, uh, I like to cook it medium rare as well. What's Do you have like a recipe or what do you say to those newcomers that are trying it that might kind of like relate it to chicken where it's got to be, you know, cooked very well? Do you, do you have any tricks up your sleeve for the, for the newbies? Yeah, actually that's funny, Sheldon. I just did a... Uh, I just did a cooking course, online cooking course uh, evening with a group in Churchill uh, that was organized through, uh, I think it was, it was funded through Movember and also through the Regional Health Authority. And so um, they asked folks to come up with uh, a dish of their choice and then they provided all the ingredients to uh, the people that subscribed. I think there was about 20, 25 people on the, on the, um, little cooking demo that we did. So they all, they all had spring geese and they all had all the other ingredients. And what we did was like an Asian, uh, uh, stir fry. It was a ginger garlic, uh, fried, uh, goose. So we took the, the breast meat and we sliced it really thin across the grain. And then we, um, we coated that in a, in a mixture of like egg and cornstarch, fried that up in a pan, added, uh, a mixture of, um, uh, green onions, carrot, uh, and then a sauce, kind of like a, almost like a teriyaki sauce with garlic and ginger, did that all up and then put that on rice. And that's how I, that's how I like doing, you know, um, goose when, when you don't cook it rare. So you can, you fry that nice and thin and it turns, you know, you, for all you know, you could be eating beef or veal or something else. Yeah. Right on. Damn. That sounds like a home run. Um, that's going to bring me to our second question here. If uh, you had one last concert to go to and uh, you can see whoever you want, whether they're still alive or they are dead, who are you going to go see for this concert? Ooh, that's a tougher uh, question for me. I'd probably go with the Beatles, just being like an iconic band and, um, you know, someone my parents grew up listening to at least on my on my mom's side anyways i'd probably go back and take that in just to say that i'd that i'd been there nice man i've I've been down a few journeys of memory lane with uh looking back at some of the music that my parents used to listen to it's always good um the next questions i got for you here are a little more related to uh wildlife now this episode is going to be talking a little bit about turkeys a little bit about waterfowl and a little bit about your work. So if you could hunt turkeys in one place in the world, where would you go hunt them? Yeah, I'd probably go, you know, somewhere in their native range, probably probably somewhere in eastern eastern United States United States, uh, you know, somewhere iconic like Pennsylvania, you know, home of the eastern wild turkey, big hardwoods, you know, that those sort of um 
you know, really open hardwoods that have that where you see a lot of hunting shows chase them and you can see birds from a, a long distance. And there's just a, you know, a good density of birds where you've got a lot of, a lot of birds responding to calling. Yeah. I'd probably, I'd probably, I wouldn't want to compete with all the hunters there though. I'm a terrible <laughs> turkey caller and, uh, they got just an unbelievable amount of hunters in some of those States. So, yeah. uh, I think we, yeah, I, we, we have it pretty, pretty well here in Manitoba for hunter densities compared to some of those States. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, so second, uh, hunting related question. If you could hunt waterfowl in one place in the world, and I'm going to scratch out Manitoba here because I know it's a pretty popular destination for lots of people and it is a, a pretty good spot. If, but if you could go hunt waterfowl be anywhere in the world besides Manitoba, where would you go? Always been interested about Argentina, uh, you know, somewhere, somewhere warm and, and uh, yeah, lots of, you know, really abundant waterfowl populations, obviously a lot of doves there too, but variety of different species that we don't encounter here so you know beautiful landscape lots of good wine yeah, yeah argentina sounds <laughs> nice. pretty good <laughs> i'm in count us in and uh, my last question here is re- re- more related to work obviously you had uh, uh, a good stint as a provincial waterfowl biologist here in manitoba and you're now moved over to the federal side and and uh over the years i'm sure you've been to a uh, a few different spots that uh you know you might have some a particular draw to or what whatever but what what would be your favorite uh spot to conduct field work right now or what has been your favorite spot in the past year really like northern manitoba i'd, I'd say there's nowhere you know nowhere quite like that in terms of the diversity of unique wildlife and you know right on the edge of the arctic but just the you know, I've traveled elsewhere in the Arctic for field work up in the Eastern Arctic and in the Central Arctic and Northern Manitoba has such a diversity of, uh, you know, birds and, and, uh, you know, and, but, but also just the variety of, of, you know, sea mammals and caribou and all the bear species and the density of bears and, um, you know, fish and yeah, Northern Manitoba and the scenery and the history too. I think the, I really was really drawn to the area north of Churchill for the history, you know, some of the old fur trading posts, uh, up at, uh, you know, on the, uh, on the Manitoba Nunavut border and you know, all the old tent rings that I know you've seen up through that area too, chase, like the history of people coming to the coast to hunt and standing in the same places where people, you know, have stood for thousands of years looking over the same views. Like that area has just got so much human history and, uh, just natural beauty. I, I think that would be my favorite place. Nice. Yeah. One thing that, uh, that I really kind of, obviously I spent a lot of time in helicopters up there flying around, uh, as well as you did, but, uh, my real enjoyment with that was like when I got down to ground level and, and like, you know, it might not be so, uh, re- uh, like obvious in a, in an area that has no obvious, like, uh, um, landmarks or like history marks or like carvings or tent rings or anything but when you get on some of those ridges or those where there's lots of tent rings or you know there's some some stone carvings in the area and you just look around and it's it's really interesting to think about you know how people were there like exploring that area back in like the 1700s and stuff like that and even before that and just kind of 
you know, somebody else back then was standing pretty much where you were standing to either look for a moose or look for a, a way home kind of thing or a way in or a way out or whatever it may be. Yeah, I, I agree. I, the ruggedness of it too, I I always thought back about, you know, the the equipment that we had and the clothing that we had and the communication devices and all, all the things that made our trip comfortable and safe and compared to the people that, you know, originally, you know, lived in that area, hunted in that area or, or came and explored it, you know, how they survived mm-hmm. the wild swings and weather and, you know, the bugs and, and, uh, yeah, just, it's, uh, it's, it's that, that's a part that I always thought about when I was up there too. Yeah. Shelley's no stranger to that area either. He's, he spent his, his fair share in Churchill too with, uh, with Hydro. So I don't know if he's gotten up to the Nunavut border yet, but, uh, but he's he's got some time on the ground there, that's for sure. Moose hunting and stuff. Yeah, I did. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I did a few different hunts up there, moose hunt and a couple uh, snow goose hunts with some locals up there. So I've seen the landscape, I, and the same thing. I think it's just totally beautiful spot. And I know when a lot of people look on a map and they might just see nothing, right? But you actually got to get there and, and experience it. And not only that, but like the people up there <clears throat> make everything just that much better, right? Like. They're totally connected way more. They're way more connected to like anybody in Southern Manitoba, I find, in, in like a general population. But it's, yeah, it's a super interesting place. That's for sure. Yeah, no, yeah, it's a good, I'm glad you mentioned the people because that was the other factor is the people that you work with, you know, in that area, the people from, uh, you know, from, from the communities and um, yeah, the, the help that, the help you, you get from complete strangers and, and uh, friends that I have there now too. Yeah, that's that's the other big part of it. Definitely. Yeah, for Definitely. sure. So, uh, if you guys, if nobody's picked up on this yet, obviously Frank is a uh, waterfowl biologist. And last time we had you on, Frank, you were still with the uh, working for the province at the time, and uh, we had kind of talked about the new snow spring snow goose season that uh, we were you were bringing in here, and uh, now you've transitioned over to the federal side. So what's, uh, what's your official title right now? Yeah, um, so I work for Canadian Wildlife Service, and uh, officially I, my position is a wildlife biologist, but uh, my, um, my work focuses on uh, waterfowl population management and programming, monitoring programs and management programs. And, um, and, and then the, the region that I work in, uh, Prairie Region, um, I, I work both you know, throughout the prairie provinces in Canada, um, but then also run some programs uh, in uh, in Nunavut also. Nice, nice. Excuse me. Um, so how how does that uh, from a provincial to a federal level? How does that differ? Like what how what is different uh, for you in your position now than when you were at the, with the province? Uh well, the the biggest difference is that um, you know I I no longer work with some of the species that I that I used to so. I only work on migratory game birds now. I don't work on wild turkeys. Uh, I don't work on grouse. Um, I used to contribute to some of the monitoring programs uh, when I worked for with the province. We had some of our own programs, and we also worked, you know, cooperatively with the federal government. Whereas now I run those programs or coordinate those programs, and so uh, I have a different role in the in the uh, in the flyway also through the Mississippi Flyway Council. So um, and then of course just the the area that I work, I don't just work in Manitoba anymore. I, I work across the prairies and then, you know, up in, in, uh, Nunavut also. So sort of, uh, 
yeah, you know, different, you know, working under different uh, legislation too. So working under the federal market mm-hmm. birds regulations versus, you know, under the Wildlife Act and its regulations. So still do a lot of work with my old colleagues in the province and uh, work with a lot of the same individuals, but yeah, just in a slightly different role. Right, right. So would you say uh, as far as like the the level of of uh, management goes for the for the waterfowl world from a provincial level to to your level is that is that a step or is that like an avenue that does manitoba go through you to get something done or to communicate with people or when you guys sit at the table with international issues or talking about regulations internationally does the province have a seat at that table too or is it just would would you be the, a representative from this region only one there yeah, so the the way the water waterfall management works across North America, very collaboratively, you know, between between uh, state provincial jurisdictions and federal jurisdictions. So, um, so I still work a lot with the province. We still, you know, we still have you know different sort of um, cooperation from the province on our monitoring programs. Um, but you know, now I sort of work more under you know federal you know monitoring objectives, and then I you know, communicate with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, whereas, you know, when I was with the province, I was mostly involved through the flyways, you know, communicating with with some of the states and other provinces. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, I wouldn't say, you know, the province doesn't, we we work cooperatively with them to to achieve different, you know, objectives. So for migratory game birds, the provinces uh, have their own provincial wildlife acts, which um, have, you know, different regulations on them. Some of them are the same, you know, there's overlap in some of the seasons and bag limits regulations, but then, you know, the province might have more specific regulations around, you know, maybe a certain water body or certain game hunting areas, things like that. Whereas the federal regulations are sort of broader and, um, you know, less, less specific. Um, and, and generally the way those, those regulations work is we try to, achieve you know consistency in 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 how we write our our federal and and provincial regulations but uh generally the the province can create more um restrictive regulations than what's written federally but not more liberal so they can yeah they can yeah if that makes sense to you yeah totally <clears throat> so are your so your are your uh, regulations kind of more flyway specific or are they uh do they become more uh condensed than that when you're talking about federal regulations they're yeah they're generally by province so they're whenever we change regulations there's a you know a proposal process that's that's you know by each province where we work with the provinces to craft regulatory change proposals they're outlined uh you know in each province and then they're you know implemented uh if that particular province has uh, migratory game birds under their wildlife acts, if that's if that's something that's included in the schedule in their wildlife acts, then they then then they change the regulations to match you know whatever the federal proposal was that was changed. So there's we call it mirroring in regulations, but um, not all provinces in Canada have migratory game birds uh, under their their own provincial wildlife regs. So some just some just have, you know, big game and like small game uh, 
excluding and you know small game birds but excluding migratory game birds so it's sort of variable around canada but on the prairie provinces all, all three prairie provinces have migratory game birds listed in their in their schedules of their provincial acts hmm. interesting that is interesting cool um so something we wanted to obviously sit down and chat with you about um is the new canada goose season that's coming this spring um well not necessarily new but uh, the changes that are that are coming to it this spring and uh last time we chatted with you i think we were you were just opening that season up but um for reasons related to the migratory game bird treaty there's only a certain window that that you were able to open that that season up too and i know there's a lot of people complaining about there i've seen all the comments on facebook on the, on the facebook forums and it's a dumpster fire sometimes to say the least <laughs> on some of those forums but uh you know a lot of people on there saying you know why would they open it up right now you know there's snow still snow flying we're still ice fishing it's minus 30 today you know who's going to be out hunting where am i going to be it's in the middle of lake winnipeg kind of thing so um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the, the restrictions there for the, for the season and, and how, how things are going to change for this spring? Yeah, sure. So it's a bit of a, I guess it's a bit of a long, um, statement or story, but this work has, you know, really started back in about 2014. So we, you know, the population, um, you know, of interest here, temperate breeding Canada geese or giant Canada geese. The ones that nest in southern Manitoba, so Branta canadensis maxima, you know, the largest of the of the Canadies, they've been growing, um, you know, across North America, particularly in Manitoba, you know, at a at a very high rate. And um, we've had concerns about their growth uh, for a long time, you know, uh, you know, many many issues related to high growth rates, and ultimately, you know, concern about um, how large that population could get if if left unchecked and also um the ability to actually for 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 that population to actually to be controlled through harvest if you know steps weren't taken soon so um the, the work started in about 2014 sort of looking at you know various options uh, a lot of review of data a lot of analysis of data um and really it it comes down to i guess a couple things there's there's uh, really three populations of Canada geese, or, or two populations of Canada geese, one population of cackling geese that we that come through Manitoba in spring and fall. So there's one that nests up in the uh, in the eastern Arctic on, you know, throughout uh, throughout the eastern Arctic, predominantly on Baffin Island that comes through Manitoba. Those those are the cacklers, and they're the, they're small, you know, some of them not much larger than a mallard. Um, so they they come through in the in the fall and the spring. We also have southern uh, Hudson Bay Canada geese, which are a subarctic nesting bird. Um, interiors sometimes refer to them as or medium-bodied Canada geese, and they um, breed on the Hudson Bay lowlands from the Nunavut border down through you know the coastal parts of Manitoba, a uh, little little bit into the boreal areas. And uh, those are the birds that really funnel through that Okamak area. So they they have a very concentrated migration through that Okamak area. Very important to uh, harvest in Manitoba. Uh, we shoot a pretty high proportion of the total harvest in that population. They winter down in uh, Missouri. The cacklers winter, you know, all the way down in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, Louisiana, that area, some of them in, you know, Kansas. And then we have these temperate nesting Canada geese, which are the ones that have been growing at a high rate. 
Um, and they nest in southern Manitoba and really only go and migrate as far south as they need to. Sometimes they go down to Missouri. A lot of times they, you know, they only end up in like Iowa or even farther north. And so we have three populations, but not all of them exhibit the same, uh, you know, signs as overabundance. So um, the other two populations have been relatively stable. Uh, those Arctic nesting populations, relatively stable. They don't, um, you know, they don't cause issues in urban areas. Um, you know, there's, there's not, they're not nesting in, you know, obviously in urban areas. They don't really use those urban areas to the same degree that giant Canada geese do. They also don't contribute anything to the, um, to the summer crop damage issues that we have in Manitoba because they've migrated, you know, and they're in the Arctic when the, when the, when the crops are growing and, you know, things like canola are sprouting, sprouting. So really, um, they're not, they're not, the issue of overabundance is not as a whole amongst these, these populations of geese. It's really specific to giant Canada geese. And so when we look towards trying to control this population through harvest, um, we had for years tried to increase opportunity during the fall season. So increasing bag limits. If you remember, we used to shoot five Canada geese. We went to, to eight. Um, we've, inc we've, uh, increased the areas, you know, bag, uh, uh, bag limits in some zones like the zone around Winnipeg we've lengthened the season so we moved the season up to September 1st we've done a variety of things to try and uh, increase the harvest rate so the proportion of the population that we kill each year uh, specifically the adult portion of the population and we've been unable to do that with, with these fall regulatory changes and the reason for that is because the population gets swamped in the fall when all these other birds are coming down from the Arctic um, hunters are shooting these other populations and, sh and they're swamping the harvest on the population that we're trying to control. So that's where we thought, well, if we could have uh, a spring season, might uh, a spring conservation season, might we be able to try and control them that way if there's a difference in the timing of migration between these birds. And so we set about trying to explore using um, these devices called geolocators when these birds migrate through in the spring. So we had very good data about when these birds migrate in the fall, where they go through through Manitoba, you know, what time, when they leave, where they're harvested, because we have tremendous banding data for all these three populations. But in the springtime, we have very limited numbers of recoveries, so we're not able to get the same information. So it really necessitated this need to, to deploy all these tracking devices. And so that's why it's been a, a long sort of process. There's a process to actually formally uh, have the population designated as overabundant, which is a formal federal process where we have to make the case um, for the, the rationale for the population being overabundant. So um, really, what are the threats to conservation of, this, of the birds themselves or other birds or habitats or what are the agricultural or environmental or other interests that are affected by the abundance of this population? Because the Migratory Birds uh, Conservation Act says that we can only hunt uh, for 107 days between September 1st and March 10th. And so the only time you can have spring conservation seasons is if you designate that population as overabundant. And so the reason that the, um, that the season starts early, starts March 1st, and then runs only until the end of March is because of the overlap of the timing of migration between this giant Canada goose population or temperate nesting population and those other species that are heading up into the Arctic. 
So based on the geolocator data, we could determine that these giant Canada geese are moving through in March, and these other two populations are starting to move through in about uh, early to mid-April. That's when they're present in Manitoba. So if we ran our season, you know, into April, we would be harvesting, you know, uh, individuals from populations which uh, are not considered overabundant. And, and that would be, you know, outside of the, the scope of the season. And so, yeah, that's the, the short answer for, what, for why it ends early. And then the short answer for why it begins early is uh, because we, you know, don't necessarily know when Canada geese are going to turn up every year. We've had some years where we've had, you know, decent numbers of Canada geese here in February. If we've had really warm, you know, um, uh, early, you know, unseasonably warm springs. And so we set this, the hunting season uh, March 1st to 31st, sort of well uh, well in advance of when some birds arrive, but to provide that, um, you know, ability for people to hunt in years where we did to get an early spring. So apologize for the long-winded answer, but uh, it was a, it's a very detailed uh, question. <laughs> There's a lot of information there. <clears throat> I'm just going to try to kind of recap a few things uh, cackler, subarctic, and then the, you know, the big Canada's. Um, and then, so obviously there's a lot of interest, like you said, with agriculture, with urban areas. Can you like also classify like vehicle insurance companies, et cetera? Are they the ones kind of putting pressure onto some of these, you know, whatever you want to call them, some of the, the new, newer seasons or, or bigger numbers of birds to be taken? Is there other, other comp- like groups other than agriculture? I wouldn't say, I think there's other groups that are interested, but there was no, I wouldn't say there was, you know, this is very much a, a, uh, in an internal, uh, motivation for this, for this season. Um, there are groups that are interested. I know that, uh, Keystone Ag, Ag producers, uh, a few years ago in Manitoba, they had a resolution about crop damage caused by migratory birds. It was, I don't think it was specific to Canada geese, but it was about issues associated with crop damage. Um, certainly, uh, there are issues with, you know, vehicle collisions and geese in urban areas, you know, Winnipeg and other areas, it's not isolated to, to Winnipeg. It's, I think only about half of the claims for, from Manitoba public insurance actually came from Winnipeg. So it was a, it was a fairly widespread issue of collisions either with geese or collisions caused by geese. So, you know, breaking for groups of geese, things like that. So this, there was no pressure to introduce this. Yeah, this was a. This was an internal initiative, you know, looking at the data, the long-term monitoring program data that we have, you know, on abundance, on harvest rates from our from our banding data, survival rates, and recognizing that with declining hunting populations, uh, if we, you know, don't do something soon and try to control this this population through harvest, uh, they're, they're going to escape our control. Yeah. And the other thing I was going to ask you too, Frank, um, I know, like me personally, and the, the we do a lot of field hunting by like Minnedosa, Franklin, Nepal area, um, and yeah, a lot of times we might limit out on your on our Canadas, but they are cacklers. Do you think there's ever going to be a time when you know maybe there's something else maybe looked at or introduced that cacklers would be maybe in a different category, or I don't know how you do it, maybe measure them like any Canada goose under so many inches is in a different category, so that you're you know you can maybe target some of the the big guys. Oh, that's a great question. I, we've never, we've never, that's not something we've discussed because of the difficulties of, of hunters, um, differentiating them in the air. And, and that really goes back to, you know, also the, the rationale for timing our spring season to, to end at that certain date is because we, 
we don't believe that hunters can differentiate these, you know, these, these, well, especially those two species in the air, but, um, but, uh, you know, but not able to differentiate those su- Southern Hudson Bay Canada's, the intermediate sized Canada's from the giants. I, I don't think something like that would be kind of, remiss. um, but you know, if there was interest in Marcus Bagelman, um, you know, to provide that additional opportunity in the fall, I, I wouldn't necessarily, uh, you know, rule that out. Um, right. But I think different bag limits for cacklers in Canada is, is something that would just, yeah, be really difficult uh, for folks in the field, you know, when you're on your, your last bird of your limit and you're trying to figure out which one to shoot. <laughs> Sorry, we, we, I yeah, just lost you for, uh, for a little second there, Frank. So just to reiterate that, that you're not really – uh, you can't really see that there's a there's going to be a, uh, a separate bag limit for Canada's, but possibly an increase if if you are thinking about going down a different route, right? I think there, yeah, I think if there was if there was widespread interest in a uh, in increasing the you know the dark goose bag limit in the fall, um, if that was something that was of widespread interest amongst you know hunters and you know and the stakeholders that are out there, I think you know, that is something that we would, you know, consider, you know, well before some, you know, you know, species bag limit for, for darkies. Right. Sorry to cut you off there, Sheldon. Go ahead, man. Yeah. I don't even know what I was going to say next. I can't remember now. <laughs> Sorry, dude. Um, <laughs> I got a couple of things uh, to ask you here, Frank. And uh, first is on the, on the date range here. So the, correct me if I'm wrong, but the original dates that that you guys had set out for this for the season was uh, two weeks up to March 10th originally, and then those dates were extended with the uh, with you guys kind of pushing the the uh, um, problem wildlife um, or conservation issue on the on the giant Canada. Is that correct? Yeah. So when the season uh, was established. Uh originally as a as a hunting season and it was march 1st to march 10th and that was because we had extra days from that 107 and that the treaty says that we can hunt until march 10th you know anything that's before march 10th is you know doesn't require an overabundance designation so we put that in just as a you know while we were working on this rationale for overabundance we put that in to provide some some hunting opportunity in early march and maybe some mechanism of controlling the population, but it was in that sort of hunting season period. Whereas this uh, conservation season, so we differentiate between, you know, technically we don't call this a hunting season. We call it a conservation season. It's only in place because of the overabundance of that population and the the desire to control that through harvest. And so uh, when we, when, when the overabundance, uh, proposal was uh you know became law we we just extended it to be one big chunk of time rather than having a a season and then a concert you know hunting season mm-hmm. and a conservation season so so that's why it goes from march one to the end of march interesting is there is there a set number of days that you can actually hunt waterfowl based on that treaty besides that that like within that 107 day window do you have a a, a maximum number of days that you can allocate to uh, hunting seasons yeah it's a it's 107 is the max between september 1 and march 10th okay so you, so, you yeah. could hunt so every you, day if if that's if the 
or you could you could essentially open up the the season to, for 107 days. Well, it's three hundred and seven days, basically three and a half months. So it's a portion of you know you have to. It's a portion of that uh, September one to oh, March okay, tenth. Yeah. Hundred and seven days out of that period, but it's really like that's the most. That's what the treaty says. And then, in a lot of cases, um, you know, in there might be, you know, especially in the U.S. where there's different harvest strategies and management plans. Um, you know, their duck season, for example. Uh, might be 60 days, you know, might mm-hmm. be, might be 82 days in a different part of the U S. So, um, it's, it, it's diff it, that's what the treaty says. That's the longest it can be amongst all the signatories to the treaty. But for some species, um, you know, it's, it's not, you know, in some parts of North America, it's not that long. Interesting. And functionally our season, you know, we could never, we could never hunt, a, we could never have 107 day waterfall season really like it's functionally you know cleaved off at probably you know around like 70 something in a good year so you know just based on freeze up Mm -hmm. and not to kind of circle back but we kind of touched on some of those uh, maybe people that are might have interest to to getting these management programs and plans into place but what happens if if it kind of gets lost or you know it kind of loses control like these populations just start booming even more than they are what are some of the things that that might happen to the to the Canada goose? Well, we think their ability for growth is probably, you know, they have maybe no cap on their growth for that we could could see they they've been growing at about, you know, 9 to 11% now for since the 90s and that's with a harvest rate of about I think about it's about 11% on adults, Manitoba birds, so about we're taking about 11% of that adult population through harvest each year and they're they're growing at that high rate, and so uh, they've got lots of habitat that they've you know t- to colonize yet, um, and uh, so we just foresee sort of continued issues with you know vehicle collisions, crop damage issues, major issues in cities like Winnipeg. I mean Winni- Winnipeg especially with with all the habitat that we have. So I think uh, the desire is to try to bring this population under control at least reduce its growth um you know maybe a best case scenario stall it out and um and 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 yeah yeah that's that's the hope interesting so like issues in winnipeg uh beyond like vehicle collisions and like uh obviously issues with like golf courses and parks and and uh and like um cemeteries and stuff like that are you talking about like water quality issues for like little bodies of water in the city or is there anything else that, that that's kind of a concern for you guys? Well, I guess there's, you know, there's sort of the human safety concern side and then there's the aesthetic concern side and, and then there's a bit of a gray area between. So the, uh, the human safety side would definitely be, um, you know, people that are, being injured, you know, in, in vehicle collisions every year from, from breaking for geese and being, you know, rear-ended by someone or, um, and then obviously the air, the the concerns with airports and, you know, Mm -hmm. with, uh, with, uh, uh, flights coming into and and out of Winnipeg, which is, which is, you know, not an issue that's just related to, um, to, to growth of that population, but it certainly contributes to it. And then all the all the little sort of aesthetic issues, which are, you know, 
you know, droppings and yards, aggressive birds. I mean, a lot of issues with aggressive birds in the, in the springtime, you know, chasing people and, and, uh, preventing people from going into businesses. And it's just, it's, so we have permitting that control can, can deal with some of those issues on a case by case basis. But the problem is sort of larger than the permitting can possibly deal with. So the permitting for egg removal uh, of of bird uh, of uh, you know of net of eggs from nests, you know, that's a very uh, challenging issue in a lot of cases. Uh, so as you know, uh, relocating birds or the palatability for you know mass mass uh, you know uh, euthanizations of of, gr- of groups of birds also. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's not a there's not a real appetite out there for that, and then it's very complicated because of all the different property owners that there are. So, you know, having a permit to remove Canada geese on your property, they might only be on your property ten percent of the time, and you know, three of your other neighbors might be really opposed to that. So, yeah, it's a it's a really challenging issue to deal with uh, through permitting. No kidding. Sounds sounds interesting. Um, this spring season, I. I... I know it's it's going to be certainly different than uh, a different hunting tactics than than what most people are used to if they're targeting these geese in the fall. So, um, how do you see that? How do you see somebody going out there and hunting them? Um, like, what what do you think that the tactics are going to be there? Yeah, I I see it quite differently too. I don't see you know big field spreads of decoys, and um, I I see you know birds that are probably coming to areas of open water, uh, meltwater around lakes, um, you know, marshes that are opening up, maybe meltwater in fields. And they're coming, uh, they'll be in smaller groups. There might be some big migration days where there'll be, you know, big, large movements of birds, you know, nice uh, southerly winds, you know, nice sunny days. Might be might be big movements of birds those days that are, that are highly decoyable. Um, but I sort of see it more as... Uh, you know, hunting around where birds are going to be uh, eventually setting up their territories for nesting later in the spring, um, which is, you know, typically around uh, marshes, lakes, um, you know, uh, or, or around areas where you have really large numbers of birds. So maybe some more field hunting opportunity around, you know, the periphery of Winnipeg. Um, but yeah, I see smaller groups of birds that are um, probably going to be quite territorial and and I think probably quite easy for people to decoy. Nice. That's a good sign. And uh, my last question here before I think we can transition here um, is back to some, some fall birds here. And we, we had a conversation uh, a couple weeks ago with Jim Fisher on the podcast, and he made mention of the, uh, the kind of fallacy of, uh, of the term northern birds coming down and uh, kind of stating that, you know, we are in the north here. And I think he was referring a lot about uh, to the to the duck populations. But as far as let's say like the classifying northern birds for Canada geese in the fall, which people often reference to uh, like the the late season birds that are still hanging around, is there any truth behind the whole term northern birds, or are those birds just in that area the entire fall kind of thing, or how like? Where where are those late season birds from? Yeah, I hear, I've heard that lots too, and I think it I think that idea of northern birds goes back to 
maybe some of like the sporting liter- literature, you know, 40s, 50s, when there was a lot of outdoor writing about, you know, concentrations of birds that would come after freezes and the, the northern red-legged mallards, which are, you know, the drakes, the, the, the adult male mallards that are, that are in their, um, you know, getting into their nice plumage with their big red legs. And I think, I think Jim's right. I, I, I don't know definitively, you know, that it's ever been dismissed that they're not north, you know, from somewhere way up north or maybe just a short ways north. But I think they're just birds that, you know, have been relatively dispersed on the landscape. And then there's been harsh weather that's concentrated them. So they've come from, uh, you know, uh, they've, they've come from other other maybe local areas or maybe they've moved from you know we have a, a kind of a, a, a southeasterly movement of some birds in manitoba from that uh you know from that pothole country minidosa country that sort of you know take a southeasterly movement through the mississippi flyway and then you know some birds that even go to the great lakes that way so i think it's just a concentration of birds from from other areas Interesting, interesting. I got one more question here, Chase, before we kind of transition. And I know last time we on the podcast we talked about the flyways. There's four of them. I can't remember them right now. So you can maybe tell us about those. But what what is an actual flyway? Like is there is it like a jet stream like to make them fly faster in these flyways, or is it just like a natural um like a natural path for them to, that they've been taking for years? Yeah, great that's a great question, Sheldon. Uh so it's uh it's really just uh you know administrative boundaries is really what the flyways are so there's four of them there's uh there's atlantic uh mississippi central and pacific and um really they were the flyways were sort of important in the the whole uh evolution of waterfowl management and they were based on early banding data that sort of showed these you know typical movements of waterfowl from from northern areas you know the southern areas to winter and so um they're really just administrative boundaries now where, you know, the Atlantic flyway is composed of uh, groups of, of states and provinces and the Mississippi flyway is composed of other groups of, uh, or, you know, other states and, pro- and provinces. And there is some overlap. So Ontario is in both the Atlantic flyway and the Mississippi flyway. They sit on, uh, at, on both those committees and have interest in, you know, in, in regulations in, you know, in, in both flyways. And then so is Saskatchewan. They sit on both the central and the, Mississippi Flyway and um, I believe Alberta sits on both the Central and the Pacific Flyway too. So, so yeah, there's a fair bit of overlap. They're just really general, general movements of birds. Yeah, lots of, you know, lots of, lots of uh, cases where you know birds from a Mississippi Flyway jurisdiction end up in a Central Flyway jurisdiction, and that's the case with some of our geese in Western Manitoba. They end up in the Central Flyway. Yeah, that's cool. And then just kind of a follow-up question on that. I said I only had one, but I'm going to lie a little bit. I have two. Um, but the flyways, they seem to be kind of shifting. I think we kind of touched on it last podcast again, but uh, I guess so if anyone's listening, go check out that first podcast. You might know what I'm talking about. But is there truth to that, like the, these flyways are kind of shifting maybe westwardly or, or what have you? Yeah, yeah, definitely well-documented movements, uh, you know, both latitudinally and long, longitudinally um, in flyways. And some of that is driven by changes in, in food resources on the wintering grounds. So a good example is, you know, the basically the complete movement of snow geese out of Texas, you know, uh, heading east, you know, mostly into uh, Louisiana, mostly into Arkansas, actually. And that's really related to, to the lack of rice production in, in Texas uh, these days. 
And so uh, there's those movements, and then there's you know some shifts also in the wintering distributions of birds. So uh, it, a later migration of birds from Canada uh, over over the you know last four or five decades, we tend to be holding birds for about the, uh, about another two weeks longer than we historically did, and birds don't simply go as far south as they used to either. So the population of Canada geese that comes from that Churchill area used to go all the way down into Arkansas used to be, you know, fairly heavily shot in Arkansas, and now we don't get a single band recovery down there. So, uh, yeah, a lot of east-west and north-south movements ever-changing. Wow, that's incredible. Um, well, I guess uh, moving on to the uh, our second portion of the, the podcast here that we want to talk to you about, Frank, and uh, as you alluded to uh, at the start here, you know, when, when you were on the uh, – uh, on with the province you had a lot more hats that you were wearing there um as uh upland game birds turkeys and a few other things and and one thing we're kind of interested in today is is uh talking and diving a little bit more into uh, turkeys in manitoba and uh, i know talking to you after the last podcast we learned a hell of a lot just speaking to you about turkeys in manitoba where they came from and and all that stuff so um i'd I'd like to know the history of turkeys in manitoba a little bit because because one thing i learned from you is that manitoba didn't necessarily have a wild population of turkeys to begin with is that correct yeah that's right so yeah they were um you know manitoba was well north of their ancestral range uh for for eastern uh you know wild turkeys they're northern range was i'm going on memory here but i think their their east their northern range was you know ancestral range was thought to be about sort of mid middle of south dakota that sort of latitude uh, maybe into the southern part of minnesota um but certainly not in you know anywhere um in, on the prairies and um so they were introduced um they were introduced in uh late 1950s through a really sort of started just as a really small program that was fundraising that was done through a group called uh, Wild Gobblers Unlimited, which uh, was an affiliate of the Manitoba Wildlife Federation. And they uh, started a fundraising program uh, to get birds from a hatchery in uh, North Dakota. And those birds from the hatchery were, uh, they were recent, you know, recent generation from from, uh, Eastern wild turkeys, which originally came from Pennsylvania, I think. And so they were, they did come from a game bird farm. They weren't, they weren't wild stock. But they were, you know, recently removed from wild stock. So they weren't, you know, they, they weren't what we think of as game bird farms, you know, game bird, farm bird, game bird farm uh, individuals that sort of lack, you know, any ability to survive in the wild. They were, they were good stock and they, they proved that they, they uh, introduced them in the fifties and they started growing uh, immediately. And from that original source population that they introduced in that, in the Pemina Valley and around the. Miami area, they were able to start trapping from that population as it grew in the wintertime, and then, you know, slowly putting birds in other parts of the province. And um, then later in the 70s and 80s, they started actual uh, hatchery program, hatching um, and raising poults and releasing these six-week-old poults onto the landscape, which has now been shown by a bunch of research in the U.S. to be, you know, not a very effective approach to establishing turkey populations, but you know, I guess we'll ne- I guess we'll never know what you know effect those efforts had. They they may have 
you know, may have had had a uh, you know a really significant effect. Like we may may never know that question, but or that answer. But uh, so there really there was there was that initial effort, and then sort of trapping from that source population, so subsequent releases, and then that's really the model um, that trap and transfer program. You know, mostly accomplished through volunteers. That's really been the model ever since. How many? Do you know how many turkeys uh, they they brought in initially? Yeah, it was uh, you know just the ballpark. I think it was something like twelve, wow, fifteen. It was very small number of birds. Yeah, okay. yeah. I think they got a little bit lucky with probably good winters at that time. And uh, once the pop, I mean, we know turkeys are capable of tremendous growth when they get good good nesting years. Um, you know, they're they're hardwired for large clutch sizes, and if they get uh, successful incubation and, uh, and the poults, you know, can make it through the, and they can nest again in their first year. Yeah. Frank, you said, uh, poults a few times. Um, I'm assuming that's like a zero to one year old chick or young Turkey. That's right. Yep. Yeah. The juveniles. That's cool. So then can you just say that again? You said that there was, um, that's not a good technique to bring in or reintroduce turkeys is by bringing in poults. Is that because of predation and um just not surviving maybe the climate and, and stuff like that yeah there's there's been a fair bit of research uh looking at um the effectiveness of of you know trap and transfer of live wild adults versus raising you know uh birds from from eggs you know hatching in incubators and then releasing those youngsters out onto the landscape and they've really it's really been found to not be very effective at all um they just don't lack uh they tend to to come from you know a very uh uh small number of like they have lower diversity genetic diversity and they tend to because they don't have a a hen to you know to care for them and to show them food sources and um you know show them how to stay away from predators they tend to have very very low survival so it's yeah, the National Wild Turkey Federation has done a fair bit of work uh, to try to, um, to to show that it's not a very s- successful technique. Hmm. Interesting. I heard through like farming techniques that those those things are kind of uh, tougher to keep alive than than other birds around the farm. So <laughs> makes a little bit of sense. I, I think, yeah, I think there's been some other work that's been done that that shows that they they are more likely to to become nuisance birds also because they. They are used to being around people and, you know, uh, those are birds that can become, yeah, like habituated to human food sources and things like that. I think there's been a fair bit of work in the States that's shown that. Yeah, we got a, we got a population here in Brandon that are like city birds. And I just kind of, I see them all the time and I'm just kind of thinking it's probably a matter of time before they get shooed out of the city or something just because of, uh, I know there's a lot of people that have had to break for them or, you know, stop to take a picture and slowing people down. And it's just going to be a matter of time before maybe someone might actually get hurt and yeah, they might get them out of here, but who knows? Yeah. The whole urban wildlife thing is very challenging. There's been a lot of, those birds have been trapped in Brandon quite a few times, uh, you know, to reduce their, their numbers but um always upon the the uh agreement that some would be left because there's oh, yeah. there's people that enjoy them too well and and to be it's something else that's kind of crazy i uh, was working in service there i don't know a couple months ago and they got like peacocks and stuff like walking around like yeah. free range and i was just like and like other other birds i didn't even know what they were but 
I thought it was kind of cool for sure. It's kind of neat to see them walking around. Yeah, the Cirrus peacocks. Yeah, they've got turkeys also in Cirrus. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, couple, a couple questions to stem off here, Frank. Um, first off, was there any particular draw towards the Easterns for Manitoba, or was that just kind of what was available? Yeah, I don't really know the answer to that. I, I guess I presume that's what was abundant at the time. And available from that hatchery but uh i don't know how much thought there was uh you know to 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 which wild tur- you know turkeys to introduce yeah yeah and and like I've, I've heard that there's there's some other like uh some merriams and that in- also kind of or crosses cruising around the province is there any truth behind that yeah absolutely yeah we catch uh you know a lot of hybrids uh or i should say we when i was working for the province we we used to catch lots of hybrids, especially around that Brandon area. Um, and uh, and we're not entirely sure where those birds came from. I mean, there was a history of people raising and releasing turkeys on their own, uh, which was, you know, not not legal for people to raise and relief, release them because they, they could only be possessed with a, a game bird farm permit. And a condition of that was that you couldn't release them. But, you know, that happened. Uh probably still happens today and the thought was is that that's where you know those miriams came from uh birds that were raised as as poults released you know survived and uh there's there's definitely hybrids all over the province yeah could it could it be that there's a situation where like a flock of wild birds kind of wintered with uh some farm birds and they just kind of either split up separately and a few went with one flock and a few stayed back kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. There's, you know, turkeys, the way that they make a living in Manitoba is, is by using, you know, egg agriculture. And we know from some birds that we had, uh, 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 transmitters on that they're capable of really large movements and that birds from one area, you know, there, there can be areas where there's, you know, three, 400 birds wintering in, on, in one area and then, you know, subsequently dispersed to cover, you know, a huge part of a valley, you know, you know, some of these birds are moving 10, 15 more kilometers. So, uh, you know, when they break off into their little, uh, breeding flocks, yeah, that's definitely possible. Nice. And, uh, I, I guess that kind of answers a little bit of my, of my other question here, but, um, was there no concern about like, uh, the genetics of the turkeys from those 15 that were introduced in the 50s or like were there any other birds brought in to like add some diversity to to that or like is there no concerns with like uh any overbreeding of the same genetics yeah i don't i don't know if i don't think there was any other birds brought in i think that those were the only ones but there was the there was the the uh, incubation program for years, um, which I don't know what the origin of those of those birds were, but I don't know if people at that time really, if that was a consideration, I don't know if they really thought about, you know, genetic diversity in the same way that we do now. Um, you know, there, there maybe wasn't that same, you know, the, there wasn't that the same, you know, information at, at, at their hands, at their disposal back then. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. We never, that was not something we looked at either, just to look at the diversity of, 
you know, these individuals across the province, but it might be an interesting question. Uh, I think some jurisdictions have looked at that in the U.S. That may be something interesting to look at for the future. Hmm. I don't know if there's any bottlenecks there or not. There's probably been so much, you know, interbreeding of these birds from all sorts of different origins. It's And given their growth, it doesn't appear to be, you know, hampering them in any way. Yeah, they're obviously doing very well. There's a... Seems to be in, in what I can tell, especially in the area where I'm hunting, um, quite a bit that there seems to be more and more turkeys on the landscape or on the land. Um, a couple of questions I can ask you, and I don't know if if you'll be able to answer them for sure, but what are some of those things that that on a land management aspect? What are some of the things that our turkeys thriving on? Like, how are they how are they doing well right now in Manitoba? Like, what kind of environment are they tending to hang around in? Well, I think they're benefiting from some really nice winters recently and uh you know we see there we see that response you know you see that response almost immediately with turkeys because they're capable of you know such rapid reproduction when they get good winters so high survival you know maybe they come out of these easy winters in better condition you know uh for for nesting um but turkeys are real generalists there used to be the idea that turkeys needed a certain proportion you know uh forested a certain proportion grassland and then you know winter food supply you know and this, that these sort of like really um cookbook makeups of land uh coverage but that's doesn't seem to be the case at least with manitoba and i know other other jurisdictions have really changed how they look at landscape management of tur- turkeys they really they're really generalists they they can survive in you know urban areas as you, as you know like from from brandon and and they can survive in areas with you know really like small amounts of remnant bush the one thing that they need uh no matter what in manitoba is they need a place to winter so they need a they need a good a good winter food supply they're not you know well equipped to deal with uh snow depth they can handle cold cold's not an issue for them as long as they can get enough to eat but uh they can't handle uh deep snow so uh it definitely the definitely winter food supply in the form of some sort of agriculture you know standing standing uh corn that folks are grazing with cattle uh cattle feedlots uh uh you know those sorts of things yeah so so basically they're like the cockroach of the birds they can basically <laughs> survive anything except for winter i i was gonna call them yeah they're similar to canada geese and that they can they can survive in all sorts of different landscapes and nest in all sorts of different places and Oh. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool, and they they really seem to benefit from that from that ag, obviously, and kind of piggybacking off that. So there's there's no real uh, there's no real uh, hope for them to survive in Manitoba outside of that agricultural line. Line, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. There's uh, and even you know the trap and transfer program, which moved. You know, I don't know, I don't, I'm not familiar with what they've moved in the last few years, but, you know, hundreds of birds, hundreds and hundreds of birds, um, you know, through the time that I was there. And really, that program had a pretty tight criteria on where those birds were put and for how many years. So the model that we used was to, to put birds in an area at a minimum number for a minimum number of years to, so instead of doing, you know, a, a large number of, of birds and a large number of locations kind of scattered all around to really be selective about where we put them and then commit to those releases for you know th- at least three years sometimes more 
Yeah, really just making sure that the birds got a good foothold so that they could, you know, they grew to a large enough size that they could sustain themselves, you know, even if they had a poor winter and that they were in a place where the landowners, you know, and the, and the volunteers from the local game and fish clubs was, would really sort of, you know, watch over them and, and, um, see the release through to success. Interesting. Then speaking of, uh, some of the success and some of the stuff that can kill off turkey as in like winter, my assumption is that the circle of life obviously kills some turkeys too, like, uh, maybe some coyotes and what have you. What are some of the main predators that turkeys have to deal with in Manitoba? Definitely in the winter owls, uh, great horned owls are, are really, um, effective predators of of turkeys they get them right out of the roost trees and they're also uh they also have young at in in, uh, in late winter so they're they're looking for you know good nutritious food sources for um you, you know for their young in the nest and um they'll take a they'll take turkeys turkeys are easier for them to pick off and they don't tend to use much of the bird they seem to mostly just use the head so they'd rather They'd rather, you know, take one every other day and use the head than use the bird for a long period of time. Maybe that's because they freeze or something. But yeah, owls are pretty lethal in the winter. Um, and then the the, uh, the then there's the sort of your your main like nest predators, the normal like you know raccoons, skunks, uh, foxes, things like that. That's that's super crazy. A great horn owl will take down a turkey. Like, are they taking down like full grown turkeys? They just take their they take their head right off. They hit them no when they're way. sitting in the roost tree and take their head right off. Yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. I've never yeah. even I've never even heard of that or would have thought of that. That's insane. Yeah. That's a that's awesome <laughs> for 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 the turkeys. Yeah. But um, yeah, they'll cause you know sometimes cause the turkeys to change where they roost. Uh, sometimes they don't really have, have much of a choice though, and they're just uh, yeah one will one will go every other day. Sitting ducks, essentially. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure I had a great horn. I'll take a head off one of my ducks at home here. We got some some ducks and domestic ducks, but uh, so I had I, a great horned owl right inside our barn when I was a kid. No, we had a trap door for the ducks to go in inside and outside, and uh, flick the switch on on a cold morning, and there was a great horned owl sitting on top of the back of a mallard, <laughs> looking <laughs> at me. And it was right no inside way. the barn. Jesus! Yeah. Wow. That's funny. It must have walked through. It must have landed and walked through the trap door <laughs> to get in there. <laughs> wow, that, that's crazy. Um, I'm kind of interested in your thoughts on this, and uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the what the effects really turkeys have had on the landscape. Obviously, for a lot of folks, they are a welcome, uh, a welcome animal. Uh, um, hunting them is fantastic although i've never harvested one yet i've had a blast and it's given me an extra opportunity to get get out in the field and uh, it's just a wonderful time of year to be in the woods Um, but do you think if someone if there weren't turkeys in manitoba right now and somebody wanted to introduce them do you think that's something that that uh, we would still get a green light for or is the uh, the you know the the movement of wildlife kind of tightened up since the fifties? Yeah, that's a really good question. Boy, um, yeah, the way that we treated them was there was 
always lots of questions about their impact on the landscape also. So, uh, and really there was never any real smoking guns about, you know, their effects on other species. So sometimes people think of rough grouse, they correlated changes in rough grouse abundance with arrival of turkeys in some jurisdictions in the U.S. Um, never, you know, never, not a, not a well-established relationship at all. And really no, no real concerns on the, on the disease transmission aspect. So been a variety of risk assessments done in other parts of Canada, looking at introductions of turkeys and, uh, you know, concerns about maybe some things that they might be carrying. Um, but you know, no, no, no high risks or anything there. And I think, uh, at the time that I uh, left uh, the province, there was a lot of discussion with Saskatchewan about establishment of, of uh, or uh, release, uh, taking birds from Manitoba um, and releasing them in Saskatchewan. That was a discussion we'd had with Saskatchewan Wally Federation for a few years. They'd been working with the province on a variety of health, uh, like disease risk assessments. And um, I know Alberta has had recent um, interest in establishing eastern wild turkeys in portions of Alberta where they, you know, don't have Miriams. So while it's a lot more controversial today than it was in the 1950s, those discussions are happening elsewhere. There's also examples in eastern Canada where they've, they're, you know, where they have intru- have had introductions for years and they're looking at establishing seasons. So um, I think it really just depends on um, the interest from the public and the the uh i guess the risk tolerance of uh you know the people that are in charge that's cool that's cool so if i i guess if we can kind of sum sum this turkey conversation up in a in a bit of a nutshell right now we are in the essentially the good old days of turkey hunting in manitoba right now and uh year by year as long as we're getting good winters so as uh as uh, climate change is evolving here, I'm assuming the turkey populations will only be growing in this province. I think one of the biggest contributions to, for turkeys in this province will be, you know, increased corn agriculture, which is forecast to continue to grow. It's grown a, you know, it's grown a ton since uh, even the early 2000s, and that's something that turkeys really, really thrive on. Areas where you have, you know, standing corn. Uh, good, really excellent winter food resource for them. But yeah, I think the turkey hunting in Manitoba, from a, the standpoint of success rates of hunters and numbers of legal birds passed up by hunters, is phenomenal. Like the opportunity is really amazing. the The success rates that Manitoba Manitoba hunters have are, you know, double many U.S. jurisdictions. Um, definitely a uh, worthwhile bird pursuing for anybody that's that that hasn't done it it's well that makes me feel like uh, a really poor hunter because i've i've been out for two <laughs> years now and haven't had any success <laughs> um, yeah turkeys i i know like turkeys in areas where they are pressured are an extremely difficult bird bird to hunt and that can be true in parts of manitoba where there's been some pressure but especially in you know public lands and the United States, where a lot of these birds occur, they are extremely challenging bird mm-hmm. bird to hunt. But uh, I know from our old harvest survey data, when I was in in charge of that, the success rates on, uh, you know, from by turkey hunters were were really high, over 50, close to closer over to over fifty percent. 
And many of the people that didn't harvest a bird, you know, had an opportunity to take like a Jake or something and, and chose not to. Hmm. Cool. So, uh, kind of one last thing before we wrap up the turkey side of things here. And uh, I don't know if Sheldon has anything for you, but uh, what kind of uh, populations are we dealing with these days? Or what, what were we dealing with when, when you were still involved in the, tur- the turkey side of things? Turkey populations are really hard to estimate, especially when they're really dispersed like they are in, in Manitoba. So we had, we had taken a stab at trying to put some, you know, trying to put a, put together a population estimate because, you know, when you think about trying to survey a really dispersed population that's clumped, uh, something that you just, you know, cost prohibitive, you know, with aerial surveys, uh, really challenging on the ground because, they winter, you know, you can have large numbers of birds that winter in, in single areas. So took was we, um, we started a banding program and then we, we tried to use, uh, a ratio between the harvest, uh, the estimated harvest, uh, rate on the population and then the estimated harvest. And it's called a Lincoln, a Lincoln, uh, Peterson estimate. And we tried to use that ratio to put together some, you know, some rough estimates of, population size and I'm going back in the cobwebs to try to remember what those were I think they were I think they were somewhere around like 7,000 males I can't remember if that was adults or all males maybe it was all males because most of the obviously most of the harvest rate was just on males because uh, you know hens uh, you can only shoot in the fall and very few people do so I think it was somewhere around 7,000 males uh with pretty wide confidence limits, a lot of imprecision, right? Some somewhere around there, and that was in, yeah, maybe like twenty, around that twenty thirteen time period, somewhere around there. So they've probably grown a fair bit since then. Yeah, pretty good leap since fifties, uh, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Frank, I think uh, that's about it for me on the turkey side of things, and. Uh, We'll do our little roundtable here. Sheldon, what, uh, you got anything to wrap this one up, buddy? No, it's uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on, Frank. And it seems like every time, well, now that this is the second time, it seems like we get into a conversation and I get all these questions and then you just, you're answering them as soon as I'm starting to think of them. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, it's It's been a pleasure and not only that like chase was saying earlier like we've been learning so much just from having conversations on the podcast but being able to get a guy like you on is uh is really really nice to have so thank you no i really enjoyed it guys i it's 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 fun to come and talk about this these things right on and uh on my end same kind of thing thanks again for coming out frank um just a wealth of knowledge and i I'm going to have to listen to this one a couple times just to soak it all in and uh, really make sure I get the most out of this conversation. And, uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for joining us, man. All right, guys. Well, uh, yeah, no problem, and take care. I hope you have. I hope you can get out and uh, chase some uh, Canada geese in March. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And that's a wrap for episode 76 of the Panoramic Outdoors podcast. Again, huge thanks to Frank for coming on the podcast. Uh, He was there episode four, back for 76. Uh, Guys, what do you think? Just like a wealth of knowledge there, that Frank? Oh, man. Like I I told Frank 
I'm not sure if it was in the podcast or after the podcast, just like I'm going to have to listen to this episode probably three more times just to like to soak up every, all the knowledge he just spewed out at us. So um, I love it, man. Frank, super knowledgeable and and uh, love having him on. Yeah, he's he's a he's a, he's a pretty cool. <laughs> I can't even talk. Yeah, he's a pretty cool, dude. Um, and has yeah, like you said, Chase, a lot of knowledge. And I just think it's like going to be a good future of podcast with him when when more and more stuff comes up. It's newsworthy stuff. It's stuff that I like to talk about and keep up to date with. Yeah, and uh, speaking up to date, we're coming to and approaching the end of uh, hard water season here. If you're up in Canada. Um, even I saw some folks fishing down in Texas there on the, the hard water um, So with the ice storms. So if you're out there on the ice this weekend and the next few, we're wishing you a safe and uh, and happy time. Hopefully you uh, hook into a few. And if you do hook into a few, don't forget to tag us. Uh, we love seeing that shit. And uh, if you tag us, don't forget to rate us. That always so I got a too. question for you guys. Here we go. Are you guys going to find out how to hunt these geese in the spring in this march conservation season yeah i'm gonna listen to this podcast over and over again <laughs> you just said it are i don't you know gonna i try think and, are, you, think, are you gonna try and participate though yeah i think the spring goose season is gonna be one of those ones it's kind of maybe the same as last year it's all gonna be dependent on the weather i think we talked about it kind of in the podcast earlier but i mean if if there are if there are geese around i would assume i'd probably go and try it um you know it's fresh meat in my mind and it's always uh it's always fun to be able to get out into the spring and do something when the weather starts changing i know i look forward to turkey hunting uh with you guys now because it's something new we're doing but when uh, the ice starts to to thaw and you know there's not much to do a, a little spring goose hunt might be nice to do yeah i'm really interested to see how them suckers will taste too so it, it's always uh kind of been a plan of mine to to bring out not just the ice rods but the shell decoys and see if uh you could get lucky on the ice like maybe like a little surf and turf or uh what would that be like a sky and surf or something like that you know what i mean (laughs) yeah for sure speaking of speaking of turkey camp do you think do you think the citizen canvas tent's going to make an appearance at turkey camp oh definitely i i cannot wait to get that thing back uh back set up i Unfortunately, the, the polar vortex is kind of uh, putting a damper on my camping plans, and I was going to get out this weekend as well, but I haven't. But I'm kind of hoping for, or I'm not going to, but I'm kind of hoping for the future next weekend. I'm um, going to go and set up that Citizen Canvas and get that G-Stove rock and make some food. Hopefully be, be by a lake somewhere so I can do a little bit of fishing, but it's just nice to camp. If you ever, if you haven't camped before in the wintertime, I highly suggest it, uh, as long as you have the right equipment and tools for the job, but um yeah it's a totally new experience for me it's like almost refreshing when i know it might not sound really really nice but when you can walk out of the tent with a hot cup of coffee from a nice warm bed and walk out of the tent into cold weather it's almost like a wake me up and it's just like makes you realize how fortunate we are to be able to be outside and and get out into these outdoor spots you know what i'm excited about my my whole like thrifty hunting gear thing has has come together to fruition with with this uh with the camp cot oh yeah and thankfully to you sheldon yeah i found you a camp cot all the way in uh, brandon manitoba yeah 
You so still haven't paid sweet. the delivery charge. Also, Tristan, I got a bone to pick with you. Why didn't you like my game at the start of the podcast? Was it because I called you out on your dog selfie? Your game? You mean like your your three questions or your three stories game? Yeah. No, I liked it. I just I uh, I don't <laughs> find your stories funny. That's a, there's a difference. I like the game. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, next next <laughs> podcast, I want to hear yours. Oh yeah. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. Uh, do, I guess I'll yeah I'll accept the challenge. Yeah. Sheldon, do you want to? Since we're reversing roles, do you want to sign us off, Sheldon? Do you want to give the listeners any any outdoor tips that they should abide by? Out, outdoor maxims, we'll call them, to always live by. Sure. Yeah, I, I don't um, know any really, but uh, yeah, thanks everyone for listening. We really appreciate everyone that listens, follows us on, on social media, Instagram. Look for our YouTube channel starting hopefully in the next few months. Look for that. But again, we can't thank you enough. Uh, if you have time, please hit that like button. Uh, subscribe comment do whatever you can because every time you do that it helps us out tremendously it gets us great guests like frank that we just had and yeah until next time keep your keep your rod in the ice keep your rod on the ice that's the only way